if uh, you could take a seat. I do have outlines uh, there in the back. Uh, sure to pick one out on your way in. We're continuing our series in the study of the life of Hezekiah. Uh, last week, we examined the historical narrative in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 29. Uh, this morning, we'll be examining Second uh, Chronicles chapters 30 and 31. So let's uh, seek the Lord's help and let's get right to it. Almighty Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy in bringing us together to study your word. I pray that you would uh, illumine our hearts and minds uh, as we examine your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us what you would have us learn and help us to live out these truths uh, in our lives, in every sp sphere of our lives in the coming days. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Okay, last week we, uh, we examined that as King Hezekiah looked to God for revival, and God did a revival in his heart as the king, and also in the hearts of the people which he led, uh, that led to the reforming of the worship of the worship of God in, in Jerusalem, in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, having done so, he is now looking to the people, uh, and he's looking to bring about lasting reforms uh, in the community itself, in the kingdom of, of Judah. And that takes uh, the form of the observance of the Passover, which we will we'll, uh, examine first in uh, chapter 30. And then he uh, uh, ensures that the, the, the temple worship, uh, the, the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, becomes a permanent matter, not just a thing of the past, not a one-time thing, but a thing that is permanent and will continue for the future generations and for the good of his people. Uh, now, before we examine the Passover, uh, the cha chapter 30, uh, let's get a background about the Passover itself. And that takes us back to Exodus chapter 12, verses 11 through 15. By now, uh, God had brought about nine plagues on the land of Egypt uh, against Pharaoh and the people for hardening their hearts in, uh, in enslaving uh, the, uh, the children of Israel and not letting them go, not freeing them to become their own nation and to worship Yahweh. And the final plague, uh, the tenth plague, is God's slaying of the firstborn of every, uh, every, every child in Egypt. However, even though God pronounced this judgment on the land of Egypt, he had made provision for the children of Israel. Each household was to slay a lamb and apply the blood on the lintel and the two, uh, two doorposts of, uh, of the door. And when the Lord visited the land of Egypt in judgment, when he saw this blood on those three areas, he passed over that household as, and he spared the firstborn and member in the household uh, from, from judgment from him, from being slain. And that, was, uh, the, that is the background for the Passover that we will examine more fully this morning. And in uh, Exodus chapter 12, if you look at, look with me in that passage, starting in, uh, 
in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt at night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it for a, as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So that's our background there. So keeping that in mind, let's, uh, let's get back to our main passage in Second Chronicles chapter um, 30. Here uh, in the first few verses, King Hezekiah makes the decision along with the princes to delay the observance of the Passover by one full month. Typically, the Passover is, uh, is observed the first month of the Jewish calendar, but because the people, uh, including not just the people, but the, uh, because the priests had not appropriately consecrated themselves in, a, uh, in accordance to the law of Moses, and also the great distance that the people would have to travel from their various communities to come to Jerusalem, uh, they had decided to delay the, the observance of the Passover by one month. And uh, this was not without precedence. Uh, in, Numbers, uh, in Numbers chapter 10, the law of Moses had uh, made provisions uh, for, uh, to allow for such delay. And the, the two reasons for such delay in the examination and the observance of Passover is the, uh, not, the people not being consecrated appropriately and also the distance that they will have to travel. So there has been accommodations made by the Lord so there, the people would observe uh, the Passover in, in accordance with this holy law. Um, let's look at uh, verses, starting in verse six through nine, this will uh, bring us to our second point, and that is Hezekiah's letter. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 30, verses six through nine is uh, where we are at right now. I'm gonna read from uh, verse one, just to get a context. Uh, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So couriers went uh, throughout, uh, verse six, sorry, jumping on to verse six. So couriers went uh, throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And we see that the call, the proclamation go out, goes out throughout the land. We're told from Beersheba, which is the southernmost town in the kingdom of Judah, and up north to Dan, which is the northernmost town in the remnant of the northern kingdom. Uh, and the addresses are all the inhabitants of the land. Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned here because they're the most populous tribe in uh, what was formerly the Northern Kingdom. Uh, Richard Pratt, he comments that in this letter, there are eight exhortations. 
and uh, repentance, which is uh, uh, in the letter, uh, Hezekiah says return, but we'll see that it, is, it also means repent, is the guiding principle in this letter. He says that at the beginning of the letter and he ends the letter with the same call to return or to repent. And uh, in, the, in those eight exhortations, there are also, uh, they're broken down into uh, two negative exhortations or negative dimension and three uh, uh, exhortations that are for, of a positive dim- dimension. Let's look at uh, the first one, which is found in verse six. Hezekiah says, return to the Lord. Here, this is a call for repentance. The Hebrew word for return is shub, meaning to turn back. And it is the same word used for repentance in uh, certain Old Testament passages. Uh, Ezekiel 14, verse 6 is one such passage, and it reads, Therefore say, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So biblical repentance is twofold. It is a turning away from idols and turning to God, Yahweh. Hezekiah evokes the covenant name of God. He says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Note he doesn't say Jacob, he says Israel. Uh, If you recall in Genesis, uh, Yahweh, when he appeared to Jacob, renamed him Israel and he uh, reaffirmed the covenant that he had made with his, uh, with his forefather Abraham and said that from his loins uh, all the nation uh, will be blessed. And it is from his 12 children, uh, the 12 tribes uh, become the kingdom of Israel, the, the United Kingdom of Israel at that time. Uh, let's look at verse six. Hezekiah says, return to the Lord that he may return again to the remnant of you. Hezekiah uh, is not saying something new. This is what the Lord has said of himself through his prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 1.3, Yahweh says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And in verse 7, Hezekiah is exhorting the people to break with their history, to, to not follow the example of their forefathers. And this is the second exhortation. He says, do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them in about a, a desolation as you see. Hezekiah reminds the people that it is because of their apostasy uh, of their forefathers, the land is in the condition that it, it, it currently is in, that God's judgment has rightly fallen on the land because their fathers, forefathers were stiff-necked and were faithless to the Lord. The third exhortation is found in verse 8. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. The picture here that we should have in our minds is that of an animal unwilling to come under the yoke of its master. Remember Jesus said, uh, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the, the forefathers of the, of the Israelites and also the, the, uh, the children of Judah were unwilling to do that. Now we come to the exhortations, the three exhortations that are positive in dimension. And we, we see that beginning in verse eight. The fourth one, 
which is of a positive, the first one of a positive nature is to yield oneself, yield yourself to the Lord. The Greek word for yield is nathan, meaning to give, to abandon, and, or to entrust oneself. So Hezekiah is calling on the people to abandon themselves to the Lord, to abandon their idols, to turn to the Lord, and to abandon themselves to him in worship, as they should have done all along. The fifth exhortation is to come. Come to this to a sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. And this is an invitation to come and worship the Lord in his sanctuary at the temple in Jerusalem. The sixth verse, uh, sixth exhortation is serve. Serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may, uh, uh, may turn away from you. And in verse 9, uh, Hezekiah again ends with the guiding principle for if you return to the Lord, if you return to him, again, he ends with repentance. Repent and come back to the Lord your God. In the latter half of verse 9, Hezekiah states what would cause one to repent. Why should one repent? And Hezekiah gives God himself as the reason as to why we should repent. He says, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and will not turn away his face from you. Hezekiah is not stating something new about God. This is something that God himself has declared about his character, about his nature. In, Do in Exodus chapter 34, this is what God said of himself to Israel. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So this is our impetus and our, um, our cause, if you will, for evangelism and missions. This is why we're able to fulfill the Great Commission, because God is merciful, he's gracious, he's loving, he's steadfast in his love for those who repent of their sins and to come to him. And this is what allows us to repent of our sins when we do sin, uh, privately and corporately, when we consecrate ourselves and come to God uh, in, at his house for worship. Another significant thing is happening here. Uh, as Hezekiah's letter of invitation come, goes out to the ten northern tribes, uh, God has not completely abandoned them. Yes, God has rightly judged them for their apostasy, and they have ceased to exist as a nation, yet Yahweh has preserved for himself a remnant in spite of his judgment on the land. And it is to this remnant that Yahweh extends his right hand of fellowship through his servant, King Hezekiah. Let's look at verse 10, uh, see how Hezekiah's letter is, is received. Verse 10, so the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulon, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulon humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So those who rejected the king's letter were not rejecting the messengers, but they were rejecting the king himself. And ultimately, they were rejecting Yahweh 
who had anointed King Hezekiah and has placed him as ruler over the nation. So here Hezekiah foreshadows a greater king in his call to repentance and his outreach across the far-flung reaches of Israel. Turn and read with me to uh, with uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Look at that. Just to give you a context, this is um, following the baptism of Jesus, and he has been led by the Spirit uh, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and he is uh, successful by the power of the Spirit. And uh, he, had, uh, he had been in Nazareth up to this point, but starting in verse 12, let's read. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even in his rejection, how his re message was rejected, King Hezekiah foreshadows this greater king, King Jesus. In his prologue, John says of, of Christ, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Ultimately, uh, in, towards the end of his life, the, the people reject uh, Christ saying, we have no king but Caesar, leading up to his crucifixion and death on the cross. In our evangelism, we, we ought to take pride uh, in who we represent. We don't represent a a human ruler. We represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the message that we take to our loved ones, our colleagues, and those in our community is profound. We are couriers, uh, cur the King's couriers, bearers of the greatest message in the world of eternal consequences of saving faith and repentance. And when we are rejected, as difficult as it is in our human nature, we tend to get offended. It, it's okay to get offended, but ultimately, you're it's not you that uh, they, are, they are rejecting. It is re they're rejecting your king. And they're taking offense at your king Jesus, saying we have no king but, but Caesar. And we need to uh, take that to heart and s see that it is the fallenness and the deadness of their hearts. And we were there at one point or another. And it was God's grace who brought us into his fold. And this should drive us to be faithful in evangelizing and to be faithful in praying for those among us who are lost. That brings us up to our third point, which is the observance of the Passover. Uh, in verse 12, uh, turn back to our main passage here. Second Chronicles 30, verse 12. We read, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in, in Jerusalem to keep the feast of the unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. So we see that the hand of the Lord was not only on King Hezekiah, but also on the people in, 
in working and moving in the hearts of the people to heed the call and the command of the king. And despite the rejection of many others, there were several uh, commentators said there were hundreds of thousands of people who had gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate and observe the Passover and worship their God, Yahweh. And the Passover is observed on the 14th day of the second month. And in verses 17 through 18, we're not going to read it, uh, but uh, uh, these verses say that many of the people had not consecrated themselves. There were, despite the rejection, there were uh, many people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulon, the northern tribes. And this is just my sanctified uh, uh, speculation that the, the northerners, those in the northern tribes, had been lived in apostasy for so long that they had forgotten how to worship Yahweh. They had forgotten the process of consecrating themselves and readying themselves for worship. Uh, but yet, the Lord honors their worship because, uh, as we'll see later on, that Hezekiah intercedes on their behalf. But before we get there, let's uh, uh, look at what God is doing here in the heart of the uh, inhabitants of the land, the southerners as well as the northerners. Old Testament scholars Philip Davies and John Rogerson state, we know from archeological investigations that the population of Jerusalem grew noticeably in the latter half of the eighth century. And one explanation was because of immigration for the further, uh, former Northern Kingdom. Because of the fall of the Northern Kingdom, people had fled that area for safety and security in Jerusalem. And something remarkable is happening that has not occurred since the time of King Solomon. The remnant of the Northern Kingdom have gathered together with the inhabitants of the Southern Kingdom. If you recall, about 250 years ago, the kingdom of Israel divided into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And a majority of those 200 years, all these people knew was bloodshed. They fought against each other. They killed each other. And yet, God has brought them back together as one unified people, one nation, and one community to celebrate the Passover remembering God's deliverance of them from their slavery in Egypt. So we see that a revival had broken out in the land, and it all started with God. God was with Hezekiah and moved in him to revive temple worship. And it was not a return to uh, the temple in Jerusalem, per se. It was a return to Yahweh, the God who had covenanted himself with this nation, and he had... Uh, who had made himself, allowed himself to be worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes revival as the power of the Spirit coming upon them, and they are brought into a new and profound awareness of the truths that they had previously held. They are humbled, they are convicted of sin, end quote. So this was the case of Hezekiah and the people of Israel. As God worked in their hearts and minds, they, they had a greater awareness of the law of Moses with regards to how Yahweh should be worshipped. And they had humbled themselves and repented of their sins, and they had gathered together to worship the Lord at Jerusalem. And we see in... Um,
let's see, in verse 18, the latter half of verse 18, that Hezekiah prays for the people, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rule, uh, rules of uncleanness. So, of rules of cleanness, rather. So here, Hezekiah intercedes on behalf of the people. And he, he, again, is a picture of Christ interceding on our behalf. In Hebrews, um, we read of Christ, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to whom, him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Later on, the author says this of Jesus, Since he always lives to make intercession for us. And this should give us great assurance and confidence when we come to the Lord in prayer because Christ is interceding on our behalf. This brings us, uh, brings us to our fourth point, which is a joyous worship. Notice the uh, mention of certain words um, that are listed for us starting in verse 21. In verse 21, it says, gladness, praised, singing with all of their might. Here again, as we had seen in the previous chapter, when uh, the temple again is reopen, reopened for worship, there is exuberant singing on behalf, uh, led by the Levites and the priests, and the whole uh, congregation gathers together to sing to the Lord. In verse 22, there is giving of thanks. In verse 23, the worship is done with gladness. And in verse 26, we read that there was great joy among the people in their worship. Singing has been an integral part of Israel's rich history of the worship of God. In Deuteronomy 31, God himself commanded Moses, saying, um, Write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. And in Zephaniah 3.17, God rejoices over us with gladness, and he exults over us with loud singing. Edmund Clowney says, In the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes as the son of David, the sweet singer of Israel to reveal God's love. In the upper room, Jesus sang with his disciples before he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. On the cross, he uttered the opening cry of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our triumphant king is also a singing savior. He sings with us here on earth and we with him in the assembly of heaven. Jesus is the heavenly choir master, the Lord's anointed, end quote. So you see, when you and I are reconciled to God through repentance of our sins, our spirit-led worship is joyful. We have joy and gladness in our hearts, even though the circumstances may be difficult, the trials may be hard, yet we find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And this was the case, uh, as this was the case in God's old covenant people, this is the case with us. Apostle Paul reminds us that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Point number five, we see that... Uh, the Reformation continues to take root in the hearts of the people. Uh, going back to verse 14 uh, in chapter 30, as the people gathered together uh, in Jerusalem to observe the Passover, 
they do something remarkable. Verse 14 says, They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. They had repented of their sins. They had turned from their idols. Now they're removing the idols in the land in Jerusalem when they had come to worship God uh, at the temple. <clears throat> we also see that after they have observed the Passover and before they return to the land after traveling back to their various tribes and communities, we read in verse 31, uh, chapter 31, verse, verse 1, and when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his, uh, his possession. So the revival had broken out, reformation started with the temple in Jerusalem and it spread throughout the land and the people are turning uh, away from their idols and turning to God. Um, starting in, uh, in chapter 31, 31 pretty much covers the, how Hezekiah goes about, bring about bringing further reform in the nation by making the temple worship in Jerusalem a thing uh, of permanency, something that would continue and endure for the future generations. So on the heels of the Passover celebration, the king begins the work to ensure that, uh, that the worship of Yahweh at the temple of Jerusalem becomes permanent. In verse 2, uh, he appoints the divisions of the priests and of the Levites according to their respective service. And then he himself takes the initiative by, uh, by contributing from his, from his own possessions, provisions for the various offerings and, uh, and the feasts. Uh, and we see that in verse 3. After taking the initiative as king, uh, leading by example, Hezekiah then in verse 4, he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. So he then com uh, commands the people to financially contribute uh, to uh, uh, the, the support of the, uh, of the tribe of, the, of, uh, of, of Levi, the priests and the Levites. Uh, now, God had consecrated these, uh, these men the priests and the Levites, to minister the word of God to the people and uh, to lead uh, the people in temple worship. That was their full-time job. So the people uh, were commanded of the Lord uh, in, in the Pentateuch when God had a covenant with, with the people to support this, uh, uh, the, the, the people of the tribe of Levi in their ministry of the word and worship uh, to the land. And we are told in the following verses how the people respond to Hezekiah's command. In verse 5, we read, As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, um, oil, honey, and of all produce of the land. And they, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. 
I like what one commentator uh, said, Michael Wilcock, he commented on this. How one may know that a real spiritual work is going on in the heart of God's people. The practical answer is the thoroughly earthy one of the pocket, the purse, and the checkbook. So the way we spend our money can be a reflection of the state of our heart. And here we see uh, the revival really taking root in the hearts and minds of the people of God when they give abundantly to the work of God and for the ministry of his word among, among, the, among, uh, among the people. And it ex- exactly the neglect of the ministry of the word, the uh, neglect of the law of Moses that led these people to apostasy and to uh, the condition, the spiritual condition that they were in. And they go back to their roots. They go back to, to God who they should have worshiped all along. Here again, this is another Old Testament president for our continued practice in New Testament. Apostle Paul, he commended uh, the believers in Philippi who had supported his ministry financially. He says, he said this of them, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That is found in Philippians chapter 4. This again is a faithful, uh, is a reminder rather, uh, for us to be faithful in our support of our pastor as he labors uh, to minister the word of God to us, not just in prayer, but also financially to support his work among us. And in the remaining verses, in verses 11 through 19, King Hezekiah uh, ensures and directs that all the, the offerings, the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things are accounted for and that they are distributed accordingly among the families of the tribe of Levi. And in verses, the last uh, two verses, starting in verse 20, uh, the chronicle ends his narrative on the revival and reformation with these words. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Richard Pratt comments on, this, uh, on these two verses. He says, Hezekiah's fidelity was perhaps the most important feature of the chronicler's initial assessment. To be faithful was to be one who did not forsake or prove disloyal to God or to his law. So here we see that uh, in Hezekiah's life and in the life of the people uh, whom he ruled, the revival had lasting effects in how they had reformed their lives, in how they had reformed their, their worship. And it continued on throughout the reign of King Hezekiah. Let's end with uh, a few points of application with our remaining time here. Again, we see uh, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between uh, the, the saints of, of Hezekiah's day and what we are doing today when we come to worship uh, continuity and discontinuity. 
Michael Wilcock comments, uh, few of the continuities between the Old Testament and the New are as well established as that between the death of the Lamb in Egypt and the death of the Lamb on Calvary. End quote. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and we'll look at uh, what our Lord Jesus does on the eve of his, uh, of his death. Luke 22, we'll be looking at verse 15. Verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jumping to verse 19, uh, let's read verse 16 as well. Uh, For I will tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Christ, on the eve of his atoning death on the cross, does something profound. He fulfills the law by keeping the Passover, and he institutes a new Passover for his church to observe. That is the Lord's Supper. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, uh, Apostle Paul picks up on this. He says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you all as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Even at the onset of his ministry, when John sees Jesus for the first time, he says uh, to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And also the command in the law of Moses in how the, uh, the lamb uh, that is slain and is eaten, how its, its bones are not to be broken. We read uh, uh, the prophecy that's fulfilled in, in Christ that none of his bones were broken on the cross after he was taken down from the cross. And so there is clearly a parallel and a fulfillment that Christ is that Passover lamb who, who died for, uh, uh, to atone for our sins. And uh, in verse, verse 8, he follows in verse 8, he says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven is representative of, of sin and how sin permeates every sphere and, and aspect of our lives. But Christ, by his atoning death, has, had made us unleavened. Has, has taken us, of, removed sin from our lives, and even as we consecrate, consecrate ourselves daily in worship, in private and corporate ch- worship, we're taking out the leaven that would uh, otherwise 
dwell in us and permeate every aspect of our lives. Um, in our church and uh, the new covenant today, going back to the, uh, the days of Hezekiah, so when you, when, when you have to enter the covenant community, the right of entrance into the covenant community was circumcision. Today, in the new covenant uh, community of faith, the right of entrance into our community is baptism. In the old covenant community, uh, the continuance in that, uh, in that community is uh, keeping of the Passover. In our, in our community, in the new covenant community, we observe the Lord's Supper as we worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, listen to what Edmund Clowney has to say um, on the parallel between how Christ has, uh, has fulfilled what was observed by the Old Testament saints in the Passover. He says, through Christ's circumcision and baptism, his righteous life and his offering as God's lamb, the shadows of the old covenant ceremonies become reality. Christ is our circumcision, our Passover. To replace those bloodshedding signs, he appointed new signs for inclusion and fellowship of the renewed people of God. These sacramental signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what happened during the reign of Hezekiah and what we do uh, together as the people of God when we gather together for worship is merely a foretaste of what we will experience for all of eternity. Uh, turn over with me to Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 through 9 and we will end with that unless we have some time for any thoughts or questions Revelation 19 verses 6 through 9 then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage, marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was, granted to her, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the, and the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The Passover that was, that, that was observed during the time of Hezekiah was observed for seven days. At that time, they had such a good time fellowshipping together and worshiping God that they extended the celebration for another seven days. But our celebration will be for all of eternity. There will be no end and there will be no hindrance on our part in the way we worship our Lord because we will no longer sin. And uh, our, our obedience and our worship to God will be perfect. And what a glorious thing that will be. So as we begin our week, let us keep in mind that we are couriers of a wedding invitation. Just as the couriers of of King Hezekiah sent his letter to the various tribes, to the various people in our land. We are couriers of the wedding invitation to the, uh, uh, so I don't get it wrong, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's something that can only come through saving faith in Christ. And let us be faithful in handing out those invitations to our loved ones, our neighbors, 
uh, to our colleagues, those in our community in word and in deed. So I'll go ahead and close in prayer. We just have a minute left. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we could gather together and study your word. Lord, I thank you uh, for this uh, passage on the life of Hezekiah and the people of Israel and Judah. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to do your work, um, uh, your sanctifying work in, in our lives today, that we would be faithful in living out the gospel as a community in Las Vegas. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.